Welcome to the Underwater Sunshine Podcast. I am your host, Adam Duritz. I am here with my friend, pal, and also compatriot. James Campion, how are you? I am good, and we are also back with what I like to call the guest, our friend, pal, <laughs> and also compatriot, my childhood chum. Ladies and gentlemen, please welcome David Immerglow. Ha, ha, ha. How did I get here? Excellent work. <laughs> he came back. He was so good. This is what they call in the parlance of the showbiz... A callback. <laughs> a reprise. A, a reprise. Very so, good. I'm like the Ed McMahon of uh, hell. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> you're on Tony Randall. That to you? <laughs> Where are we? That, some guy said that to you. You started laughing one day and some guy's like, you were like if Ed McMahon was in hell. <laughs> if Johnny Carson was in hell, you'd be his Ed McMahon or something like that. There it is. <laughs> yeah. Satan's Ed, Ed McMahon. I, that's what go. it was. Soundtrack for How Doom. many people did you kill today, Satan? Oh, 500,000. <laughs> 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 Fantastic. <laughs> and we're off and running. I don't think Satan kills anybody. He just kind of gets you once you're there. Exactly. Yeah, so. Satan has bad PR. Let's not get into theology. <laughs> he gets a bad rap. It's not for he me to bad say. He gets some bad who rap. Who I kill? <laughs> I'm sorry. <laughs> what I really want to talk about today is noodles. Uh, not just noodles, but broth. I have been on a kick lately. I know Immer is a, a devotee of the ramen, and I have been on a kick lately. Uh, a, a purely tonkatsu kick. I, I, I don't know because. I don't, that Rai Rai Ken is not a tonkatsu place and neither is Minka so I don't know if you do this as well but I don't even know what it is tonkatsu is the pork bone broth cooked for like you, you get like good. pounds and pounds and pounds of these bones you cook them for uh, 24 up to 24 hours or more to get to it, it breaks down the sinew everything and you get this really rich almost creamy broth that's just you know there's no cream in it it's just it's this thick pork broth and uh, it is, to me, the essence of, of ramen broth-wise. But I mean, ramen is also great without it. There are many kinds of ramen. You know, I know some of the places I love the most never had this stuff and never bothered me in the least. But lately, I've been obsessed with it. And uh, Satan's Ed, Ed McMahon pre- prefers the human bone broth. <laughs> Fantastic. What an idiot. <laughs> <laughs> so last night, I had... Uh, we ordered in from this place, Zuto, which sounds like a fucking Italian restaurant. Well, let me get this straight, though. This, it is a kind of ramen. Oh, no, it's ramen. Oh, okay. okay. It's just Not one the of the ramen many broths. You buy, yeah. Like, like you have a shoyu have no or a sure. shio base. I, I, yeah, I often never get past the miso ramen, which right. I love. I also I love, that love that. So we're not talking about the giant packs of ramen that you buy when you're no, starting. No, no, we're talking about the <laughs> Japanese <laughs> soup. Of course, yes. Surrounded by idiots today. I don't know what this is. <laughs> I don't know why. I will say this: when Adam and I actually lived together in a warehouse, we did live off of those. Oh, everybody did uh, top ramen thing. We we go to well, Costco that, that, no, and get like a pallet. Of oh yeah, top no, no, ramen. it wasn't Costco. It was that ninety-nine cent store that went in like right behind. Uh, not Flint's uh, Everton Jones Barbecue on San Pablo and uh, oh, it's still, University. That place is still it, there. It is still there. there yeah. they, that went in right before we moved in together. And that yeah. place, you could go there and get like the boxes like of macaroni and cheese. The box would be dented or slightly fucked up cans, right. and, and everything right, was right. really cheap because right. of that. So we'd get like this kind of banged up merchandise, you know, where like some of the ramen had been crushed or something in the ramen packs, and we would get that stuff and eat it. But let's get back to this real That's rock ramen. And roll staple right there. Anyway, but so now, now you know, you've graduated to is the long cooked bone broth that you like, which is a staple of you know. Joe used to tell me about during Ramadan in 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 Cairo when he was living there. 
uh, Adam's childhood friend Joey Kazoon. Yes, uh, he would do. He would get this. They would do these bone broths where they would cook them for a day until the whole the bone would break down, and they'd, they'd cook these massive, massive bowls of this very nourishing soup for people after Ramadan. Wait, you mean the bone liquefies basically to a certain extent, but it also it just gives a lot of itself up in flavor. Parts of the bone liquid. I don't think the whole thing does, but parts of cartilage, other things do. Um, you get this incredibly nourishing broth that hits you the moment you taste it. It's, it's not a clear broth. It's, it's, it's incredible flavor. And uh, it does wonders with noodles. It just attaches flavor to the noodles, too, in a way that's like... There's this place, Zuto, that was like the first uh, sushi place down in Tribeca. It's way down in Tribeca. And when there was nothing else down there, this place was there. And for 30 years, it was the sushi place down there. I guess it got taken over recently by maybe one of the chefs from Boulay who went down there and mm-hmm. the, the new management. And it, it still has the sushi, but it has a lot of other things like about eight different kinds of buns. Uh, and apparently they're magnificent. I didn't ha- try any of those. They do a uh, edamame there that's slightly pickled, so it's a little different flavor-wise than just the boiled stuff. But I got these two bowls of ramen from there last night. I had one of them. One of them was a a seafood tonkatsu, which I've never even heard of because usually it's just pork. But it was a seafood and bone broth, so it was like a lighter, almost yellow color, and it was like astonishing. Like some of the best broth I've ever tasted. And then this That's morning for for like uh, like on eleven thirty for lunch this morning and breakfast I hadn't eaten. I had the other bowl, which was just a straight tonkatsu, and it was. Again, just incredible. Tonkatsu. I got. I got a tonkatsu. T o n k o t s u. Please notice, uh, dear and faithful listeners, that we have come a long way since the pallets of broken top ramen. <laughs> yes, we have. We have. <laughs> so we're, we're we're sitting here slightly, last night. Oh, the edamame was slightly pickled. It was just gorgeous. <laughs> and we're we're trying to find a movie to watch with the ramen. And I'm like, what should we watch? Oh, genius. I walked into the movie theater trying to find something. I want to watch something fun with the ramen. And I don't know why. It just jumped off the shelf at me. I suddenly saw Tempopo, a movie which came out uh, right around when we met. It's 85, 86. We met a year or two before that. Um, But it was a huge hit in the American – for a foreign film, it was a huge hit in America and all the art theaters. I remember it playing forever in Berkeley and San Francisco. Uh, It's by Juzo Itami. And it is a movie about a... It's like a Western, kind of, that takes place in Tokyo about a, a ramen restaurant. Um, I say Western loosely, but it's basically like they're taking some of the conventions of a Western and they're turning it into this... There's a woman who has a ramen restaurant. It's not very good. Her kid gets beat up every day. Nobody goes to eat there because it's, it's not very good. Uh, and these two truckers who are reading a book on the road about... The proper ways to eat ramen, get hungry, and pull off into this ramen place. Uh, they get into a huge fight, and the guy, who's wearing a cowboy hat, decides to stay behind uh, Goro. And his friend Gun, who's bizarrely played by a very young Ken Watanabe, the friend cool. Gun. But Goro, I can't remember who plays Goro, but he stays to, te- to, to teach lessons to the young kid about growing up, and also to, to turn her into a great ramen chef. It is completely fucking Shane. It is just Shane transported yeah. into a ramen restaurant. It is an astonishingly funny, great movie. 
it, it had intercut with all these vignettes of people eating food. We were talking about the one, the Japanese gangster in the white suit and his girl, and they, they crack open an egg and they get the egg yolk out and he puts the egg yolk in his mouth and they begin to pass the egg yolk back and forth between their mouths as they make out. Yeah, without the, breaking the yolk. Without breaking the, the yolk until finally the yolk breaks in the woman's mouth or she breaks and it just dribbles off. It's in, incredibly erotic. But there's a lot of these vignettes of food. Um, they're like all about food and love. And they're interspersed between the story, which is this sort of bizarre Japanese Western about a uh, a ramen shop. And her... It's also got a little rocky in it in that she goes and, you know, studies with other ramen makers and learns about ramen. And it's it's an amazing movie, but it was just... The funny thing is, I've never seen it. And I've owned it forever. I had a... And I've just... I've always been dying to see it and never have. It's got some great extras on the Criterion disc with a bunch of different ramen chefs. The guys from the ramen do. shop in San Francisco or Berkeley. And uh, Ivan Orkin from... Uh, Ivan Ramen here in New York talking about ramen and, and the influence this movie what was had the on Ber- them. What was the Berkeley Ramen Shop? I think it's called the Ramen Shop. It might be in San Francisco. Uh, uh. These three guys talk about it. One of the guys had come back. He talks about he comes back from Tokyo um, in about 86 or 87. He's been over there for a couple years. He comes home. He goes up to Chez Panisse and he's talking to Alice Waters and he's telling her all about ramen because he like apprenticed in a, in a ramen shop over there. And he's obsessed with ramen, and Alice Waters says, well, have you ever seen Tampopo? Um, and when this happens, Zoe turns to me, and she's like, Alice Waters, he's talking, that's your hero. <laughs> and I was like, that's my hero. Um, Alice Waters, of course, uh, founded Chez Panisse and all of Nouvelle Cuisine in Berkeley in the Where I worked in late 60s, 1980s. early 70s. Yeah, where Immer worked. Uh, out of, right out of high school, right? Or in yeah, high school. Yeah, I was, actually, it was... After second year, first year of college. Yeah. It's a Berkeley staple. It was, it's one of the most famous restaurants in the world, especially among foodies. It was our neighborhood restaurant when we were kids where like people hung out and went to eat. And, you know, then, it, you know, for 50 years now, they've been putting on a different meal every night, changing the menu every single night. Um, it's an incredible place. And that was the first cookbook my mother ever gave me was the pasta pizza and calzone cookbook and the oh god their pizza yeah do you remember the calzone they don't they oh, used yeah. to have it at the cafe yeah. they don't have it anymore they took it off the menu and it was one of my favorite foods on earth and we used to make it for those big banquets at my house we yeah, make right. uh, never as well but uh there was something about the way they did it i wish i could go there and like get alice waters to teach me a weekend course in making that calzone because it's but that that there's a pasta recipe in there it's so simple it's just uh, shrimp uh and parsley, it, it, it's you garlic in a pan, heat it up, throw the shrimp in, throw the parsley in with olive oil, throw the pasta in of some lemon. It's just it's just a parsley, garlic, olive oil, shrimp, and lemon over pasta. It's incredible food, so simple. Yeah, um, but about, we watched Tampopo while we right? ate this last night. Oh, cool! And it was awesome like my first like some of my first memories of cooking was when me and joey used to make those big dinners when we were growing up for everyone and the the first time we did it we did it for ourselves we went down into oakland to 
like one of the Chinese like seafood markets. There's underground unmarked places. Oh, yeah. that would just, sure. You go in these rooms underground, like around Eighth Street or Alice in Oakland, and there were these places where you you go underground and then you're in this room and there are just these massive tanks, and in the tanks are all these fish, lobster. Um, I don't know what else squids there's just all kinds of like fresh seafood down there you tell the guy what you want they take it out they you know we got some tuna I think and some salmon and some octopus we had heard about sushi but it's like I don't know 1984 there are no sushi restaurants that I knew of in time I think I don't remember ever having it before this and I think I would have had it if they'd been there and we rented a copy of Kagamusha, The Shadow Warrior by Akira Kurosawa. So it's whatever year that came out a couple months later when it was on, you know, VHS. And we went back to his house. We got high as kites and we had a book and we made sushi. Appropriate dining for your movie choice. There you go. Yeah. Joey had gotten this book. We figured out how to make the rice. He had those little bamboo uh, mats that you use to roll the sushi with and he had the seafood I mean the seaweed and we had like you know the mirin and the, the, the vinegar and we made the rice we cut the fish we made rolls I had never had octopus before we made all this food got high as kites and watched my first Kurosawa movie and his too we decided to you know like educate cool. ourselves on Japanese culture, Japanese filmmaking, and Japanese food all this one afternoon high out of our minds. Fantastic. And we managed to pull it off. We did it. I, I, it, it began for me a lifelong love affair with uh, sushi and also with Kurosawa. You and I became obsessed with Absolutely. Kurosawa. I think at this point I've seen every movie. You need, you need Japanese music. You need uh, Yellow Magic Orchestra. I think we were still stuck no, on vinyl no, back then, so no, it's probably yeah. impossible oh, to find no, I, things like that. Wouldn't, wouldn't have gotten that for some time, yeah. And so. I, just, I just was thinking about I, that. That happened last night, so I, I wanted to uh, express that. Those of you who well, saw my uh, I, it, Instagram will realize the time play, but fuck it. <laughs> <laughs> Once again, uh, to drag out a story, but now i got to ask you what your ramen eating technique is. Because mine changed over time after a slight revelation, huh? You know, it's funny. Because you've sure. got the you've got the bowl, you've got the the spoon, the wonton soup style spoon, and you have chopsticks and maybe a fork. Well, I was here last night, so no wonton style oh, okay. spoon, but but still chopsticks and a, and a big uh, spoon. Yeah. Uh, for me, I, I mix the stuff up in there a bit. Uh, I want to get make sure the noodles are really steeping in the uh, broth because also when you get it from uh, delivery the broth is separate from the noodles and you really want the noodles in the broth uh, so for me um, I get a, a spoonful of the broth right at the beginning I think and then I just begin attacking the noodles sometimes I just take the noodles on my own sometimes I try and get a spoonful of broth and pick up the noodles drop them in the spoon so they're really getting the broth although I guess proper ramen uh, has enough fat on it that sure. the the broth should stick to the noodles, and you get a fair amount of flavor when you pull it in. But sometimes I want a little more. Um, but the, the thing about ramen is you're not supposed to be very precious about it. You need to sip it, slurp it. Yeah, I'm sure. a slurper. Well, I, I go okay. bowl and then you bowl. You drink from the bowl and, and it up. force feed the uh, noodles up into you. Yeah, yeah. Okay. Indeed. Well, so this is how I did it until we were playing a show in Hawaii, and there was this. 
Japanese ramen shop that had been recommended to me uh, around the corner from the hotel. And we had a late flight out that night. We played the night before. So, oh, I'm going to go to that place for lunch. And I go there. It's only Japanese people in there. And, uh, you know, sort of this horseshoe ramen bar. And, and I'm sitting on one side and these three Japanese women are sitting on the other side. And I'm, sorry, and I'm waiting for mine to come, but I'm watching this woman do it. And she's like, she takes the wonton soup, uh, noodles, uh, the, the soup spoon, um, big Japanese soup spoon. She grabs a, a, a bunch of noodles with her chopsticks and drops them, no broth, drops them into the, uh, into the spoon so that they don't fall out, grabs a little bit of something else, uh, pork, a little piece of the egg, so a vegetable, puts a little piece of kimchi, puts that on this pile in the spoon. Uh, the hot oil that you get at, at the, you know, squirts some of that on there and then puts that in her mouth and eats that like a bite, like a pasta bite. Then she uh, spoon, eats the broth separately, you know. It was really weird. And it's like, whoa. I start doing it that way. I've never done it in a, a different way now. I always do it that way. I do you know. use a spoon occasionally when I just want to get some noodles in the broth with it together. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That, At the very beginning of the movie last night, it's the two guys are in a truck and they're driving in the middle of the night. And the one guy's reading a book about ramen. And then the book kind of comes to life and you have this master and the student who are sitting next to each other at the ramen bar. Old man and the young man. And they, the ramen comes to them. They both, you know, sniff it. The young man gets his chopstick out. He starts to get ready. He's just about to dig in. And he turns to the ma- old man and he goes, Master, how, how do you eat ramen? Do you eat the broth first or the noodle first? And the old man says something like, well, it's, it's not that simple, you see. Yeah. First, you must contemplate the pork. <laughs> he's like, what? He's, you must contemplate the pork. And he stares at the pork, three pieces of pork that are sitting there on top. And he says, uh, then you take your chopsticks, and he's like, yes, and you point them at the pork. Not too obviously, but you point them at the pork. Then you stroke the pork and he push and push the pork a little bit down into the into the broth to get it a little like wetter and then now you take the pork and, and it's like you don't eat the pork you move the pork off to the side and submerge the pork and he puts the pork under some of the noodles so they're in the broth now before you turn back to the the noodles quietly address the pork <laughs> i'll see you in a little while <laughs> He says to the pork, so that it knows you'll be returning, but not right away. And then he goes back and he, he strokes the noodles for a while to get a sense of the, the bowl and how the bowl, you know, he runs his leg. He takes a, the pork out of the bowl. No, just oh. briefly. Oh. Just to the, because he moves it to the side of the bowl oh. under some noodles. Because it's sitting on top oh, of everything. Oh, gotcha, gotcha, and he gotcha, wants gotcha. to submerge gotcha, it for yeah. a while. Absolutely. Give it a chance to really take part in the broth. Like and, but that. it's just, it's just, it's wonderful. <laughs> and this is what, they're, they're going through this and he, you know, he, he takes the, like the chopsticks across the noodles, almost like strumming a guitar, just to get a sense of the surface. And then the whole book is interrupted because the other guy's like, okay, we're going to have to pull off. <laughs> Why? We, we have to get some ramen. I'm hungry now. Yeah. <laughs> we have to get some ramen. And then the movie starts. So this is like right. a, a book within All a book right. within a book in the movie. It's like All it, right. then the movie starts, they pull off, and they go into a ramen place, and that's where they meet the woman. 
Um, but right. it begins with uh, cool all that nonsense. It's fantastic. Well, there you go. Yeah. Well, now that we're here, I wanted to talk about Sorted Humor because this is a band that we both speaking spent a lot of, of years in. Speaking of ramen. Exactly. Well, ramen years. When, or top yeah, ramen. Been, that would have been the ramen years. Yeah. yeah. Oh, yeah, it was, wasn't it? Yeah, we were living right in that so. warehouse then. Um, so we were in this band for a long time off and on. Um, and the band existed for a long time off and on. Um, it In about four different groups of recording sessions, the initial ones we don't really have because that's the, the Gila Bend record. What was that record called? There was, You know what? There was... Tony Don't. Tony Don't, right. There was actually a recording session before, and that's how I met them, because they, they answered, it was Polymorph Studios, which I was part of. Um, we had ads out in the paper, in the classified flea market to get people to come record, and Tom or Jim of Sort of Humor called, and it was a eight-track studio at the time, can we come in and record? And I recorded three songs of theirs at this session, and I can't remember what the other two was, but one was called Ram Love, and it came out on this uh, this vinyl compilation called Germ's Choice, which he was a DJ at I remember that. KUSF, and actually Monks of Doom's first recording was on that same compilation, a song called Versus, Versus Montana, and... Uh, and that was the first Sorted Human Sorted Humor recordings. It was just Tom... Uh, Jim and a drummer, and uh, and Jim playing bass, Tom uh, singing and playing guitar, and I want to say he played mostly acoustic guitar. It was a oh, that's right, because the next set, the Tony Don't stuff, is produced by you, isn't it? Y yeah, David Bryson is involved too. It's at Bryson's studio, Dancing Dog. Um, but yeah, I believe I produced it. Jumping Jesus Jumping and Jesus. Uh, Apollo Thirteen's on that, and three else. others. I so want to say Private Archipelago was on there, and then it got moved to the other thing that as well. That was a later recording. That was a later recording. There was something else. I really loved that song, Apollo. Is it Apollo 13 yeah. or Apollo 11? Uh, I wish I had it. I know, hand, me too. It's know? driving me crazy. I only um, have that on vinyl. Um, there Jumping was a Jesus version was a of that. That was a year later, easy, that that recording took place. Yeah. The next set of recordings... two or three sets of recordings on that record there's a oh hell I can never remember there was there were two, for the next set the, the, uh, there there were several sessions there was there was one with Marty on bass and Toby on drums right and then there was one with me and Chris on drums yeah me Chris, on bass and Chris on drums Chris Peterson yeah. from Camp Van Beethoven the Monks of Doom Immer on bass uh, me singing backgrounds yeah. Yeah. Jim Gordon on uh, lead bass yeah, it was like, he was really into New Order, and uh, which I was just learning about, like that whole Manchester thing where the the um, the bass player plays Rickenbacker, almost lead melodic lines on the on the bass or baritone guitar. He would play something. He was running it through a whole bunch of shit to effects. get the sound. Oh yeah, um, it reminded me of like later on in years when I saw like Neil Young's rig at a gig, and he had like he was he was running it through so many things. Yeah. Like, yeah oh yeah. Like his a stereo receiver up there. Yeah, right. Just, but Jim had so many things going Jim on. Jim Gordon. And then, of course, uh, the songs were written and sung, and the guitar was played by uh, Tom Barnes, who is still one of my favorite songwriters of all time. I, I am still in awe of that writing. I mean, I love it so much. You know, we were 
happy to be in that band, Absolutely. even though I was just singing backgrounds. Absolutely. Yeah. Uh, let me I mean, I was just, I was just, had been recording them, and I just eventually was like, oh, I'm, I'm gonna, I want to be in this band, yeah, you know? and I'm gonna be the bass player, you know. That but was really is, fun. Uh, apocryphally, isn't that where you met David Bryson? Because I, I've told the story that it was at one of those sorted humor sessions at Bryson's studio that I, where I brought you in. No, no, but I met see, David Bryson. Well, I had met him earlier. Uh, I want to say at like a Model Society thing because he did sound. For the last Model Society show, sure, but that was that was after this. No, no, because then I went away. When I came back from from Europe, before I left for Europe, Marty took me down to Dancing Dog, and me, Marty, Toby, and uh, Dave Bryson, and then Lydia showed up later on. Yeah, but that's that's way after this. No, no, it's not. It's nineteen eighty nine. And it's like early summer, 1989. Yeah, but Sorted Humor, the first recording with Sorted Humor was like 85 that I did with them. Well, maybe I did know them before. I don't know. But like, and those, I think, uh, those first, those dancing dog sessions were... But that's where I feel like I met Marty. I mean, where Marty introduced me to Dave Bryson really was when we, we did like Bulldog. I like to take credit for that. Wrote one. a bunch of songs there. It's that fine. definitely happened. Let's just make it you. <laughs> if it makes you feel better. Um, you guys better come to some conclusion on this before I finish any plots, you know. <laughs> well, since we were it's in the band. It's gray area, definitely. Since we were in the band together and we've been talking about Monks of Doom and Chris Peterson, I want to start off with the song. What's the first song on the record, anyways? Years later, all the sort of humor recordings were uh, compiled by Caroline Records. Well, by Tom, Caroline Records. Capricorn. Capricorn. But they went out on Caroline. The that, Capricorn that did the Woodstock soundtrack? I introduced Adam to David, David Bryson. Well, we're going to grab <laughs> What we'll do is grab it off the yeah, wall in a moment. No, that but the first oh, song right. on the record, which is called Light Music for Dying People, is called Iceland. And, uh, Living in Iceland, Iceland. Spinning Iceland. down the coast in our bikinis and our buffalo coats. In the back room yeah. of the basement, she keeps a tiger. I'm just happy when I'm inside her. And I wonder what it feels like. Living in Iceland. This is Iceland by Sordid Humor. It's to Tom Barnes. It's ridiculously good music. Living in Iceland, Iceland I'm living in 
Can I ask you guys who's playing on that? Chris Peterson on drums, Immer on bass, me on background vocals, Tom Barnes on guitar and, and lead, lead vocals, vocals, Jim Gordon playing that outrageous sounding lead bass stuff. And that's what's on most of the compilation. Or no, this this spans about, a couple of years. About a third of it. Yeah. Oh, okay. Is that band? Um, we that band played a bunch of shows. Yeah, that was really fun. I never thought, I mean, I was so happy and like intensely in that band that it was really hard to think about being serious about other stuff. Like, I mean, I was also at the same time in Himalayas and in Counting Crows, uh, an early version of Counting Crows. But uh, I I mean, I would say of the three, the one I was the least uh, involved in almost was Counting Crows at that point. Because Himalayans was my full-time yeah, main Himalayans band. I loved thing. Sword of Humor. And Counting Crows had sort of broken up. So it was an acoustic version of it that was either me and Dave Bryson playing like open mics. Or a version with me, Dave Bryson, Matt Malley, and Ben. I can't remember Ben's last name. He was the Mr. Uh, not Mr. Dog. The Yeah, Mr. Dog drummer. Who was also I playing. Even, I can't remember I can't his remember last name guy. right now. He was a good guy. That's um, how we rolled back then, though. Like, three bands all at the yeah, same time. Yeah, I noticed that. Yeah, everybody in County I guess I still kind of roll that way. Yeah. And I was also, like, uh, singing on a million things uh, at Dancing Dog, Dave's studio. I was singing on everybody's records, you know, because it turned out I was really good at doing background vocals, too. So everyone was call- – and Dave Bryson was yeah. calling me in to do everyone's records at that point. Um, it's funny. Uh, talking to Barbara Rappaport – or about uh, or Barbara Garrett now about Underwater Sunshine Festival and she said she had just gotten a call from Art Alexakis this is just this morning um, who was the the leader of Everclear but at the time I think his band was Overwhelming Colorfast is that the band he had in the Bay Area was that his one he was a dancing dog. He had a band that recorded a dancing dog because I sang background vocals God I recorded Overwhelming Colorfast but I don't was that Art's band I don't It was one of those bands that was dancing dog bands because I remember singing on his record and then when Everclear came out later being like, oh, that's Art. But Barbara told me this morning she heard from Art that he's doing stuff solo and he's interested in playing Underwater Sunshine, which I thought was really cool. Um, But, you know, there was a lot of people in that scene, not just at Dancing Dog, but at Polymorph where you had your studio, uh, Emmer, and, you know, all over the Bay Area, everybody was making music. Like, when we lived in the warehouse together, we went out every single night... For like a few months, we we had this funny run where like we either played a show, 
had a rehearsal or went to see someone's show. It was a friend of ours every single it, night. It was a bad, sad night if something wasn't going on. Yeah, like that, it was you know? just it just never happened. There were so many friends of ours in bands, and we were all in three, four, or five bands. You know, I'm in three bands. Uh, I'm friends with Dan. Dan is in like three or four bands. Charlie's in twenty bands at that point. Charlie, he was in, Charlie was a regular at the studios. For yeah, sure. he was just a complete whore. No, he had the he was in all the bands with the great names though. Clark Kent and the Reporters, Johnny Rocket and the Rollers. John Charlie managed to be in all those bands. They had great fucking names. The Naked Barbie Dolls, Tender Mercies, of course. Um, Is that when you guys were going on your bootleg run for trying to find? Yeah, that, that same time watching as the, Twin Peaks in that that warehouse. Twin Peaks and the yeah. smile, the smile yeah. seeking sessions. Yeah. Beach Boys. Yeah. yeah, yeah. That was all during there. Um, so let's play one of the ones from the other band that's on this record too. Uh, uh, the, the other group of musicians playing on here is uh, still, of course, Jim Gordon and Tom because they were sort of humor. I'm still singing on them, I think. Uh, but then you have Marty Jones on bass and Toby Hawkins, the original Counting Crows drummer, on drums the for a lot of these sessions. The original and, Counting Crows rhythm section, right there. Yeah, and these are. Like Gunman, Lolita, Oklahoma, Ben and Mary, are those produced by you or are they produced by Bryson or is the two of you doing it together? You know, again, it gets blurry in there. It, de- it definitely gets blurry in there. And the, the two, st- whenever I was overbooked at Polymorph, I would, that's how I got to, you know, befriend Dave Bryson actually was because of these two studios. His was in Oakland and he was all, he, you know, we were eight track. He had 16. We got 16. He went to 24. Eventually we were both 24 when, Polymorph moved. He was but, 16 for a while, though. He was, you know. And so it was like, oh, if it's a bigger thing, I'm going to try and get rent out Bryson's space. And all these weird hours, sessions starting at midnight and going until six in the morning, you know, for the cheaper price. And like, I can do that, you know. I can work at the record store and then go to the studio and work all night, you know. Yeah, and we had, it was a big warehouse in Emeryville where Dancing Dog was located. You'd ride up in those old time industrial industrial elevators, elevators yeah. that you slam the the oh, like, sure. pick a fence down on it yeah um it, it was just in a desolate area it's funny because it's anything but desolate now um but it was pretty desolate then and we all had like there were several recording studios in the warehouse and a ton of rehearsal spaces because i was in two i i know that model society had a rehearsal space there himalayans later had a rehearsal space there before we moved up to my house um this is all in berkeley Steve Bowman's band, Berkeley, Oakland. No, it's yeah. this is more Emeryville. Bryson's yeah. place was in Emeryville, yeah. Which is like Berkeley and Oakland kind of yeah. meet at sure. the Bay Bridge, but right. right underneath there, on the Berkeley edge of the water, there is is Emeryville. Oh. Um, and we were so we were all. We, I mean, what was Steve Bowman's band? Not, a Mad Affair. A Mad Affair. A Mad Affair. That's right. That's how we met him because he he rehearsed in that building with his band, and also Bryson produced the Mad Affair album. So everyone's around. And there's right. so much music going on everywhere. And I'm amazed at how how varied the music is. Every oh, yeah. band has such its own. I mean, when he played me the Himalaya stuff, I could hear little, you know, traces or roots of what would become his yeah, sure. writing style on Counting sure, Crows. Sure. When I listen to you play with the Monks, even the early early stuff, I hear you. I could I could pick you out, you know, just from knowing your work with Counting Crows. Better than me. But listen yeah. to the, yeah, <laughs> but you know, and then listening to Sorted Humor. It's again a completely different band. These are all. I'm, I'm amazed. What I'm trying well, to say is they're not. Well, there was, was like smoking bands. rhythm prawns and yeah, bands that were really out, outrageously different. All kinds of stuff. I mean, 
honestly, when you think about the time, the, the fertile... Uh, everyone talks period, about, yeah. you know, San Francisco in the 60s was obviously a very fertile music time. But in that, those mid-80s, late-80s, you know, the, uh, the house where Adam eventually lived and Counting Crows had a rehearsal studio in the basement across the street, Primus lived. Yeah, and you can't right. come up. You can't come up with two different bands, and they're on the same street. You know, literally directly like, across the street from each other. And what street was this? Les Claypool, uh, Virginia, and La Loma, yeah. right, right there in that corner. Right in San Fran, Berkeley. No Berkeley. Oh, right, that's yeah. still Berkeley, huh? Yeah. yeah. And so you know, the Green Day guys are down. Green Day was happening. You know, uh, sure. You know, Oakland, all the yeah. weird bands I was playing with. Uh, Barbara Manning, if you remember her. It's SF Seals. Yeah. Sure. Do you guys ever Seals. play, uh, did you ever play in Telegraph Avenue, that area there? Oh, I, used, I grew up playing there. I Penelope play. Houston. Penelope Houston. There you and go. her the band, Avengers. you know, from the Avengers. Uh-oh, but by this yes. time, she's doing her own acoustic thing in the Bay Area. There's just all so much different stuff going on. And it wasn't like, oh, I mean, there was a certain, you know, there was a band called Bomb that I really liked. I was friends with the, the guy in that band, and and uh, but you know, most bands were trying to sound like Iggy and the Stooges, but but still, um, you know, there was just there's a wide wide berth of a lot of different kind of music going on. It's also and, a huge world beat and, and funk scene and a burgeoning hip hop scene too, because Two Shorts coming out right then. Um, God, yeah, we, we we rehearsed at Jackson. Monks rehearsed at Jackson Street Studios, and that was like Tony Tony Tony. We're in Tony Tony Tone. We're in there, and uh, um, the Digital, Digital Underground, Underground which uh, is where you know, Tupac comes out of Digital Underground. Again, you can't come up with two widely different things than Digital Underground and the Monks of Doom in two rooms next to each other. Right. You know, but that was the Bay Area then. That, unfortunately, it's not the Bay Area now. I was I when know. I was in Oakland a few months ago. Not even that long ago now. Uh, going to a few basketball games, Owen and I uh, went over to Everett and Jones uh, in Jack London Square. Mm. And we're, we're sitting down to have some Barbecue ribs. joint. Yeah. yeah. And guy behind me turns around and says, hey, man, uh, you don't know me, but I, I used to play guitar in a pretty cool band from the Bay Area. I just want to tell you that I'm a really big fan. I love County Crows. I love when you guys were first coming up around here. And uh, I just wanted to say hi, because, you know, from one Bay Area musician to the other. And I was like, what band did you play? And he goes, oh, you wouldn't know. It was like a funk band. And I said, well, what's the name of the band? He's like, Tony, Tony, Tony. Oh, awesome. I was like, you're fucking kidding me. I was blown away. It was so like, hot. yeah, it was, there was a lot going on right there. Yeah. So let me, let me play you this bit from uh, a different version of Sorted Humor, slightly earlier, about a year earlier, um, with, like I said, Marty and Toby are the rhythm section. This is a sort of assassination fantasy song called Gunman.
Yeah, yeah, man, that's a good great one. song. Great pop song. Really it's it's wild to song. hear that the first time that clank clank snare comes in, you hear that that, that Toby, Toby Hawkins baby. He was such an original drummer in so many ways. Like he was so obsessed with fucking with the sound and tone and the note of his drums and like as you pointed out, even in the middle of songs, yeah. he would stop oh, to yeah. tune his drums yeah. mid song. But I, what I remember was coming into rehearsal and he would have a different drum setup every day. Yeah, like there he, you go. he was always experimenting yeah, yeah. with like the snare on the left. I'll put the snare on the right. No snare, <laughs> no snare at all. Drums lined up vertically like a tree. You know? <laughs> well, one time we came in, he had the snare no between drums. his legs. He had the snare right between <laughs> his legs. Yeah, yeah. Just all and the snare and the kick drum all centered somehow, which yeah. is nearly impossible. Or the kick drum off to the side, the snare in the center, and everything else on one tree up. But like cymbals, yeah. yeah. just like one tree <laughs> of drums. Right. 
And yeah, he's kick. super high symbols where he couldn't reach them. Or the <laughs> next time, it's like, oh, symbols are below his seat. Yeah, but, everything's know. down. Um, and also, always, you know, possibly wearing a pair of glasses with no lenses in them. You know. The total original. For the effect. Later became a really good lead singer, too. Yeah. What was that band he was in that was so good? Uh, he, he was in one I'll go look for it. I had the record one here. One called Laundry, and then later, uh, which was with the one of the drummers from Primus. That was a really weird one. And then a band called The Girlfriend Experience. The Girlfriend Experience. And That's a, what I'm thinking He's of. got something going now, too, and I can't remember the name of it. I just was ta- with Marty this past couple of months doing stuff up in the Bay Area. Um and uh, he told me that Toby had a new band yet again uh, that was pretty good. When when that when that uh, she was waiting she was waiting part came in, I, I remarked to Immer, "Oh yeah, I was in my counterpoint period. I had just discovered counterpoint, and I was putting it everywhere." As a singer, never trust a background vocalist who, who wants to employ counterpoint. <laughs> it just means he wants to be heard singing on his own. And it's, you, know, you can't trust <laughs> hey, those people. If you, but, got, if you got the goods, you got the goods. But I will and say the, this, the, oh, the outro is a pristine, which I call the Marvin, your Marvin Gaye outro at the end there. It's just like, oh, that's the payoff of the whole song. Which I call the, the Mary Clayton, give me shelter, get yeah, down. that's right. The, uh, the whole wailing... Uh, Soul singer in the background. Uh, yeah, I was going to say that, that, that you can be more wrong about that in a sense where what he's doing there is there, but it's not obtrusive. It's not, oh, there's oh, no, no, Adam. No. And, and no, it, like I say, when you've got that. the good, you know, it's he, so he good. Came with, he came with it. You yeah, know? and I mean, it's just as, as a, as a sidelight too or as a background. Um, I wish, uh, I know we have Ehud here with us today. I wish somebody was taping this because the two of you guys while these are playing, him commenting about Marty's bass playing and then you guys joking about the vocals, it's, it's fantastic being in this room watching you guys listen to these songs <laughs> because in Imra's it case, takes you back. he hasn't yeah. heard this. I mean, I've been listening to this for a I couple weeks thanks to, to Adam Gibbs. long, long time. Yeah. It's taken me right back. Yeah, I went through this whole record with Felipe Molina. We were sitting in here uh, a month or so ago, a couple months ago when he was up here and we went through this song by song. I talked. That's what gave me the idea to do the podcast of it when you were here because we, I went through every single song on this record with Felipe talking about them and I thought, wow, that should have been a podcast. So we're, you know, we're kind of getting back to doing that now. Yeah. I mean, it's it really is fascinating watching your face because you're like, oh, right, that happens. And, <laughs> and Oh, yeah, I forgot all about that. It's it's, wow, it's... Good, good stuff there. Good, good top ramen, top ramen yeah. singing there. But so, I'm a, I, I we don't also, really want that shit tape because the stuff that you hear on the mic is what we want you to hear, and the stuff that you hear that you don't hear that's off the mic while we're the songs are playing is the shit we don't want to be held responsible for. I wish I could control it like that, but you know, <laughs> stuff just comes out. That's what know. we do here. So um, I'd like to hear. I'm I'm requesting Barbarossa. Is that how you pronounce that? Yes. It that, that's the one that that's the track that jumped out at me. When I when a, he gave me the fantastic. the disc, and not only because Adam's singing as well. I'm sorry. A video was actually made for it. No I mean, way. I think in a way it's the best song, the most complete. It's uh, the later band again. It's from the last group of recordings. Me, Immer, Chris Peterson, uh, Jim, and and Tom, and it's it's using the kind of idea of pirates uh, and the sort of Caribbean uh, islands uh, as a metaphor for. Uh, Hookers, young girl hookers on the streets uh, in Oakland, basically, mm. and the uh, the different islands uh, in the street. You know, the neutral ground being the island. It's an interesting metaphor to use. Like, and he and it's it's that, but he's also mixing the imagery together. So 
you, you shift in and out of this sort of like fever dream of pirates with the streets of Oakland kind of. Uh, oh, I like. That. I think it's an amazing, yeah. amazing song. Now you um, contributed some some imagery to this as well lyrically. I'm, you know, I, he just gave me a lyrical credit because I wrote the stuff that I sang. That's all. It's just. Oh, I see. It's I probably see. not a real. Oh, okay. I don't. I don't think he necessarily needed to give me a, a lyric credit on this at all. He just did. It was nice of him, but unnecessary. It's the same thing I'm doing on all the other songs. It's just maybe there's a little more of it of stuff that I wrote on this one, but well, you're more prevalent in this in this song than any other anything else on this disc. Yeah, he game, mixed man. it that way too, though. He wanted me in, way up with him on this song. It, it is the part is more of a duet thing in those sections, but um, what year is this? This one? I don't know, ninety one maybe. Yeah, that sounds about 91, right. 92. That sounds about right. Might be even later, maybe 92. This is the end of Sorted Humor, kind of, near the end. Um, yeah. Because I'm, in, in 93 I leave, or 92 I leave. Uh, um, it's right around then. It's right around when, you know, everything's kind of coming to a close. I'm, uh, we get the, the deal with the uh, Counting Crows, so it's before then. Right, so Himalayas was still going too because the you stay with them. Yeah, but Himalayan, it, it all went. They all went right up till the end when. Right. Uh, although there was kind of a little bit of falling out stuff with Sorted, where I, I didn't play a couple of the last few shows. I had to miss a rehearsal, and Tom got pissed at me and and didn't want me to play the show, and it was the show that yeah, the record company that. came to. Yeah. Like Caroline, that's what Caroline did. They came to the CS. They were going to sign the band, and we played that show at the DV8, the one that was over a pool. Where they oh no yeah that was wasn't DVA it's across the street from that deep par- not Paradise Lounge but yeah I know what where was it, I know where it is called? it had the pool that would yeah. close up yeah and, and uh, we were playing the the gig there and I, I had I couldn't come to a rehearsal for some reason and uh, he didn't, he decided to punish me and not have me play the gig God, and it was so the gig the record company came to then. and uh, they did they, did didn't get signed, get signed. No, no they didn't get no. signed. Um, I can't remember what happened exactly. I mean, it, you know, there's just a lot of stuff going on at any given time. It's nothing big, but uh, anyways, this is Barbarossa. This is a phenomenal song. Tom Barnes. Just every time I hear one of these songs, it it, it blows my mind what a great writer he is. Almost seventeen, she breathes in gasoline, and when she falls asleep, she's got these crazy dreams. Pirates take young girls away to burn down everything. She likes Bloom cars. They know how to talk And she sees islands in the street Between the cars Which are like waves on the beach She's sick of gasoline Rising off the concrete She's sick of
Right there. What the hell was that? That's there. Jim. That Gordon. Was the, that's Jim Gordon's bass industrial bass right that's there at cool. the end there. there Boy, you, you know that uh, that build on the drums by Chris, yeah, yeah. the drums and the bass. That is a near per. That, like that's what you want to build. That's an absolutely perfect way. It's furious. It's insane, and yet it manages to restrain whatever you know. The thing about drum build isn't that you have to like just be small and get big or be. Uh, spaced out and then get fast it's that like you decide what's determining the ones and whatever it is that you hit which in his case it's like the the crash cymbals he's like he gets more and more furious on the rest of the drums but he doesn't hit the crash cymbals that often and then he does you know and like yeah. it's like it's like this very much there's this insane restraint you feel this insanity being restrained and then it explodes out um, and he is in fact furious yes. at the drums <laughs> and that's a completely different drum yeah. style than the other songs, the Toby stuff. This is Chris yeah, playing. Sure. Stuff. That's Chris but, on yeah. that one. But, the, but the snare sure. is exactly the same. It's like no, that no, snappy the... snare. It's not that's because that's Chris it. beats the living shit of it, but but uh, Toby does too. But Toby has it tuned like so, like clank. Yeah, uh, He's got yeah. that great Toby sound yeah, yeah. where it's just like, plack. Yeah. <laughs> I've never seen anyone else tight. play like that. Tight. Really tight. Yeah. Just like, plack. Yeah, but the snare really drives through all these songs. Really, oh, those two guys both beat the shit out of their drums. Mm-hmm. They they are very violent, both of them about it. It's just great. Oh, let's go back and play another one with Toby because uh, we didn't get to low. I gotta say yet. something funny about that song. Though. Go ahead, because uh, there was there was a video that was made for it. Oh yeah, later it was uh, County Crows were well happening. It was when this record came out, and 
I want to say Engine was opening for uh, Counting Crows at the Greek Theater in L.A. And I happened to be down there, too, playing with Counting Crows. This is at the end of the August and everything after tour, I want to say. It's right after Ben joined the band. That's right. And and you would go out and do Barbarossa with Engine. You, yeah, yeah, and it got some of it got filmed, and then it was like cut into a video, which got shown on MTV 120 minutes at the time, right? And I, I was also playing in this band at that time with Bogus uh, called Papa's Culture, and we played up in Sacramento every week at this weird dive bar, Bukowski dive bar called the Press Club, and this it was this video was going to get shown on. 120 minutes on a Sunday night at like 1.30 in the morning. We had to, you know, and so we, this one week, and and uh, we stopped the bar, stopped the gig, and turned on the TV set to watch it, for, and it, it, it never got played. And uh, fuck, you know? And then we were up there the next week and, and, uh, and did the same thing, and then, it, and then the video did get played, and everyone was just like, yeah, freaked out. It was awesome. That, that was Barbarossa, cool. though. And that is so cool. Back, Everybody rooting for each back, other and back playing. In, back in the days of uh, 120 minutes, if sure. you teeny boppers out there remember that. Well, there was a lot of that. Like, I mean, we all went to see each other play. We all played gigs together. We opened for each other. We closed for each other. We played in so many bands together because we were all in so many bands. Right. You know, and it was a really fertile, I would yeah, but also like really, there was a lot of fraternization sure. in that scene. For sure. Everyone was for going sure. to see each other play. For sure. You know, um, it just yeah, seemed like you know, spot. you couldn't, you wouldn't have been going to see something every night unless you had a lot of friends because it wasn't all us playing. We were, we were, there was so much to see and so many venues. I mean, there's, it's hard to find those spots. Yeah. You know, they they don't they come and go. You know, like I say, San Francisco was like that. It had its a heyday in the sixties. It definitely was. We were lucky when we just when we were coming up. There was a lot of stuff to do and a lot going on, a lot of different weird opportunities on every level. You know. Do you and think it, if there was social media then or something? What What do you think helps that that period besides so many musicians being there and supporting each an other? interest? Just a natural underground an inter- interest. An interest. You know, and but you know, we we had our own way of making social media happen. We all yeah, had I mean, mailing lists, and we sent stuff, and we worked, and we, we combed the page. You know, looked at the advertisements yep. and the who's playing, where, when. Oh, check it out! He, Adam, and I would just like okay, uh, pink section from uh, the San Francisco Chronicle would tell you what the shows were for the, for the next week, and we'd say, we're going that, we're going there, we're going there, we're going there. All the clubs listed their stuff. You still have that here in Time Out, like lists everything. Oh yeah, sure, sure. You know, yeah, I, I it's mean, a little. It's not as colorful and, and easy to no, scope out because no. you could find your ad for the Starry Plow. You could find your ad for the you know Paradise Lounge had its listing for the month. You know every yeah. week. You know that was you get, nowadays. You but 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 Time Out does have like every day. Sure. And it, by each day they have everything and what's sure. going on there. And you can. I mean, but yeah, it was a really for whatever reason it all really worked and people came out to see bands. You know, people, we made mailing lists. We would put, like, at one point we figured out the way to do it because you could, you could keep a pad at the front and have people come up and sign Well, that's it. what we used to do, you know, but, have a mailing list and everything yeah, like yeah. that. But the, the different people, it, we didn't have people follow us to the venues because we didn't have that kind of great. It seemed like you guys had about 10 or 12 venues within a walking distance. Or, it was know, like that. I was just thinking about that. Deal, when we were trying man. to remember the name of this venue where the fabled sordid humor without Adam gig happened. I I can't remember the name of the venue and then I'm realizing, God, 
There are a lot of venues. Well, oh, just Market. on that block, there were five. South yeah. of Market was a real area like Deep Ellum is, yeah. like uh, yeah. like the French Quarter is, and like uh, you know the Village is to a certain extent. It was a real well, area. You could say were because, but also the, there were other areas too. Because Kennel Club and and the I Beam, maybe the two most important clubs in the city, absolutely. weren't in either well, one. The of Hate had its had its heyday too, and the, yeah, the I Beam and the and and Nightbreak, those yeah. two spots. But it wasn't just uh, that one area. Is my club. point because the two most important clubs weren't in that area. The two big ones where you'd really want to get get to be playing were the Kennel Club and the I Beam. That's right. And the I Beam right. was on Hate, and the Kennel Club was out what to visit Arrow. Yeah, I mean, you know, so people went. It wasn't just about being in that area because the ones you had to pack. Kennel Club's still there. It's called called the Independent now. It's still pretty good. And it was called something right before. It was called Kennel Club too. It's gone through many different. Did you guys have a favorite? Um, I like the I Beam and the I like playing Kennel Club. 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 Although maybe my favorite place in the city was the Paradise because the Paradise Lounge had three stages. Paradise was really fun because there was three stages and three different areas. You could wander from stage to stage. You could play on stage to stage, and just you know there were three bars in there. That was a really yes. You could see that was the funnest. You you could be there could be three bands playing there at a time. Which was pretty great because you could really wander through and see all kinds of different shit. And no kidding. It was also great there. And aside from that, it had a fantastic bar. Yeah. In the place too. Yeah. So like, there's three stages and a bar. None of them were as big as like you know. If, if it has to do with where I want to play, I want to play the Kennel Club or the I Beam. If you're not playing the film, and then there's you know, let's not for, forget which are still there: Slims and the Great American Music right. Hall. But that was like a, a they're a little a, bit bigger. Yeah, yeah. A bigger step. Slims is irritating because of the pole in the middle of the stage, but still it's. A, it's a cool place. Yeah. Those were more for the, the touring acts. Yeah. You know, but right. for the club scene, the I-Beam is where I told, like, I think I told you the story. At one point, it was like my birthday, and I just told all my friends, I'm going to be at the Beatniks Ophelia show. If you want to find me on my birthday, I'll be at the Beatniks Ophelia show at the I-Beam. None of my friends came, but my dad yeah, came. Yeah, that's right. My dad showed up. Yeah, you did tell for, me. And the Beatniks was uh, Michael Franti's band before Spearhead. And before hypocrisy, actually, Disposable I mean, they were and they were this industrial funk band with a guy playing uh, also, Michael DJ recorded by David Bryson at Dancing yes. Dog. There no you kidding. go. Yeah, oh yeah, a guy playing like a uh, power saw on on uh, <laughs> on a cinder block and, yeah. and chains against a yeah. big tin sheet. Rono Say, yeah, the guy's name. Yeah. Rono. Like Sapa played Rono a bicycle Say. on the. Uh, yeah, yeah. 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 <laughs> I mean, like... that, that was pretty cool, you know. <laughs> that is very cool. Hey, let's get to Lolita though. I want to play Lolita. Yes, I this think is this part is of the triumvirate of the songs on this list that I on this compilation that you that you gave me that I love. They're just like back to back to back to back. Gudman, Barbarossa, and then Lolita. Classics. It's a. It, I love the. Uh, well, it's it's Marty has the. There's the bass and the guitar playing it. They're kind of doing this sort of riff together. They're not playing exactly the same parts of it, but uh, it's a great melodic uh, line that's played by like the bass and the guitar on this. Bring it. Different versions. Are, of you, it. are you playing on this? I'm not. I don't. No, think this so. is Toby. Toby and Marty. Marty Jones and Toby oh. Hawkins are the rhythm section here. There were then the other three of us. Lolita. Yeah. 
another great one that was a really really another great song man they're all really 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 good songs what's he doing now Tom Tom works for the I think he still works for the he reached out to me last year actually uh, because Engine had the band after uh, Sword Humor had reunited earlier this year or or late last year yeah it was late last year because it was while kind of crows were on tour and played a couple of shows. I think they're. I think they may do more. So he 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 sent me a photo and a shout out. So I was st- he was stoked to be getting back to playing for a minute. But he works for uh, the Department of Water and Energy, uh, and 
or power in Los Angeles and, and uh, you know, test the grounds for, you know, toxic leakage into water systems and stuff. Sort of like that movie Chinatown. Yeah, yeah, He's yeah. like one of those guys. Yeah. Fairly high up, if I'm not mistaken. Is he still writing? I'm not sure. I'm not I sure. always thought he was the best of all of us to me. He was uh, just so brilliant. Uh, Engine, to me, was just as good a sort of humor, if not better. Loved, they were an incredible loved, band. Loved Engine. Um, yeah. Maybe we should play a little more sort of humor and then get into some Engine, too. Um, I really want to hear Oklahoma. I don't know Both why. Not, I, I want to because I can't remember it. Sitting in for my friends who would have been there. Sitting in for my friends who would have been here if they could have been. Not that I have any friends, but I could have been a gentleman. You know, I'm falling off of a curb. I thought it was a cliff. I wasn't sure if I was still in New York City, and I keep dreaming of these. This is not Oklahoma. This is not Oklahoma. I actually think it's. I keep dreaming of bees. <laughs> dreaming of bees. This is. I think he's saying bees because it's they're a little scarier. But I'm not sure. I'm pretty sure it was dreaming of bees. This is Oklahoma. This is not Oklahoma.
the unmistakable slap you in the face Toby Hawkins on drums pharmaceutical grade you know I really love him and Marty together this one and the Lolita which we played before that is Marty and Toby you can tell they're cousins they yeah they just play so well together even though they're playing music which is so different from like Marty was a funk bass player you know that's where he really came from yeah sure and but he took distorted humor and Himalayans you know he really got into doing it like in Lolita most of the melody lines are really carried by the bass, Marty's bass. All throughout that song, he's playing these like ant whistle-ish yeah, melody right. lines throughout that's the song. Right. And that one is so driven by, you know, Toby's frenzy. Um, Toby didn't do time playing drums in Himalayans, did he? No. Uh, no, oh, it was yeah, always Chris yeah. rolled down. That's right, that's right. Um, you know what I love from the later band, you and Chris, was... Uh, Miami Beach. Do you remember that song? Yeah. Because, yeah, like, yeah. that's one of Tom's best lyrics, too. You know, this air is alive, turning into me as I walk on by. What's, what's the chorus? She comes again and her eyes roll in and I feel the weight of the world for a minute. Something like that. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Let's play that. This is, this is the, that was, those two songs were the earlier band with uh, Marty and Toby, the cousins. I gotta say, Eden. Eden Unger got a credit on that last song for playing distorto bass, and she was a character. Oh, really? Yeah, she was a character that uh, was in our circle as well. Legal Reigns. Yeah, Legal Range, Calyx DJs. How I Met Her. That's how I first saw Sorted Humor. You and I went to see Legal Reigns and Sorted Humor open the show. That's the first time sounds, I saw that. That sounds right. You took me at the Berkeley Square. Um, yeah, this is Miami Beach. Play this, and then we'll move on. To maybe some engine. There is no inside 
Only air and eyes But I know why You get mad sometimes Hey man Let's go on down to Miami Beach And pull some little girls underneath Miami Beach Miami James will now speak. Fuck, what a great song. Yes, I have a question about um, Dave Bryson is mentioned there as being an engineer and a couple of these songs mm-hmm. um, yeah. producing. And I know that Adam has mentioned to me while we were working on the book about how, uh, you know, when Counting Crows first started and, you know, you guys recorded the demos that ended up being this big bidding war over them. Uh, did, were the guitars this kind of sound was did he bring this kind of sound over or was it something different it's not about sound Dave was just really really good at producing he was really good at like he he could make it too. really Great listenable too he, he, he recorded things really well and like I would give all the credit for the fact that we had a bidding war to Dave Bryson we were a good band we were but he made it so you could hear what we were doing. You know what I mean? Like, they could listen to it. It was a no-brainer for them. You know, like, it just sounded... Those demos sounded great. They weren't necessarily what we wanted the record to be like, but, you know... But they sounded amazing. He was really good with, with uh, bands from all over the spectrum. All kinds of different music. Yeah, he recorded the, the Ophelias. Yeah, I mean, great producers them. aren't about the sound they bring. There are some great producers who do bring a sound with them. But that can be a problem if you carry the sound. Like, I used to tease Steve Lillywhite about this all the time because his sound on War, for instance, and all the early uh, U2 records is absolutely essential to what those records are. And it's an amazing thing. But then he goes to produce Field Day for Marshall Crenshaw after War, and he brings that sound to Marshall Crenshaw. And he you was, know, it's the wrong he sound. Was for the Marshall gu- Crenshaw. He was the guy, to, go to guy for the. Gated drum sound, you know, but the, the truth gated is, reverb drums. Steve yeah. can produce anything and did over his career. He produced the laws too. He did a million different kinds of music. But that one time, he actually brought his sound with him right. to the wrong party. So you're saying that Dave yeah. didn't really have a sound. He just he could record really well, and so you could hear the, the no, quality I'm saying of the, the it's song. It's not just about recording really well. The best producers can produce anything. 
It doesn't matter what the band sounds like. What they're going to find is what's at the heart of that band and bring it out in a good in a recording. The best producers can do that sort of thing. And Dave was always able to work with anybody. And he was really good at recording stuff. It would sound great. And you could hear what that band was. You know, and, and that's like, it's not about that you're just good at engineering. It's it's That's a part of producing that's like, gets lost. Because just doing, being a great engineer, that could be nothing. You could just make a lot of things, every instrument sounds great, but it doesn't come together right. Right. But no, Dave was really good at that shit. He did a lot of different kinds of music. Yeah, this stuff really holds up. I mean, it has it has some 80s sounds to it, but it really holds up in the structure of the songs and the arrangements of the songs, and they sound really, really good. And that's why throughout, throughout I was looking to see what tracks he produced, and I knew he worked on this one in the credits, so I just wanted to ask you guys about it. It's a lot of the stuff, especially yeah. the, the later stuff with uh, Immer and... Um, I mean, I don't know what... Producer credits, it's hard to say what's production because there's a lot of voices on that stuff, certainly Immer's, Tom's. And Dave's. There's a lot of people who are producers who are working in that band, you know. So there's a lot of input from a lot of people. Um, was some of this stuff so, recorded at his studio? Yeah, oh, all of it was. Oh, yeah, yeah, all of it. Yeah, yeah. I yeah. think all of this record. Oh was. wow. Yeah, I think everything yeah. we did here was a, no. Definitely everything on this record is from Dancing Dog. Um, a little funny thing about Steve Lillywhite when we worked with him, and he he came to the house that we were recording uh, Hard Candy with. You know we're. I mean, he's such a lovely guy. You, you're pretty disarmed pretty quickly about, yeah. oh, my God, that's Steve Lillywhite, you know. But I was like, David, Dave Bryson and I would bump into each other in the kitchen. And I'm really like, oh, can you fucking believe this, man? That's Steve Lillywhite, fucking XTC, uh, you know, XTC Black Sea, you know. And, like, Bryson's like, yeah, I, it's Steve Lillywhite, Sparkle in the Rain, Simple Mind. You know, we're both, we all both have different records we're freaking out on as we're working with this guy about. Meanwhile, you know? me, I'm just... Laws, laws, yeah, laws, exactly, laws, laws, exactly, laws, yeah, laws, exactly. Laws. That would have been me. That would have been me. You know? Yeah, yeah. Well, we already cleaned up the laws a couple of weeks ago. I think I think it was our longest intro to any song on this podcast ever. I think we talked for like a good eight, nine, ten minutes about the song and didn't even mention the song because we just love that. The whole album is fantastic. You know? Yeah. Well, after Jordan Humor, right now, coupling ingeniously coupling. coupling uh, CD sales with fried chicken, yeah, in, and fast food in the Philippines, yeah, the Philippines. So after sort of humor fell apart, uh, Tom started another band called Engine, and then later they were called Engine Eighty Eight. Uh, they opened for Counting Crows on uh, on definitely one whole tour at one point. I'm pretty yeah. sure. Yeah, uh, and they also played just a number a number of other gigs with us. They, I thought they were an amazing band. I loved watching. And we that used band. to see them all the time too. Who's all the guys in that band? Um, Damon on guitar. Right. Uh, they had that great drummer too, David um, Hawkins. David Hawk. Yeah. Yeah. Not no relation to Toby Hawkins. <laughs> And the bass player um, was really good too. Um, Eric Knight, right? Um, oh, we're just gonna play some Engine Eighty Eight because I think it's it's br- very different and also brilliant. Oh, I forgot about that song, Baby Doll, too. Don't kill the biker, Baby Doll. David Hawkins from a very early indie band in San Francisco called B Team that was really really good, but that that was years and years before. But he'd been around for a while, the drummer. Oh wow, GTO. Oh, 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 oh,
you know, it's like it's a very different sound for the band, but it's still got the great lyrics. But more than that, like the great music and melodies, like and not just the verse chorus melodies, but his ability to write like the instrumental sections, too, that were like very the, the musical motifs that would go through the instrumental sections and have like. So the song doesn't just go verse, chorus, verse, chorus, you know, he yeah. always had a way with that. And I think a holiday is obviously great. She's gonna take you down. On yeah. And I think a holiday. It's a yeah. weird outro, yeah. but it's such a melodic one. It's much heavier than the sort of human stuff. So what year is it? And this? simpler, you know, just it's a straight up, you know, adult punk rock quartet, you know. Oh, well said. Um, what uh, what year would this have been? A couple of years ago? 95. After? Oh, so, oh, it's yeah, a good it's ways, deal later. ways on. It's yeah. about three or four years later. Yeah. Um, but check this out. This is Funny Car. It's a little different, but check it out. that song goes from this like complete furious uh very straight taut punk thing to uh cheap trick or the who in the choruses and i really like that in well tom's tom's innate pop melody ability uh, brings that cheap trickness 
yeah. to to their punk, you know. It was the it's great cool. thing he always brought to the sort of humor yeah, stuff too. The absolutely. great chorus, the, the like the great chord pattern, you know. Yeah, and I and I when we were doing the punk series, Adam and I, well, I think I brought up that that first Cheap Trick album is a punk album, I believe. It, they, they they later became like a pop rock band, but they they really did have that first record. When I listen to it now, it just sounds like a punk record. It really does, and I guess it's from that period as well. But that's a great chorus, melody-wise, and it reminded me very much of Green Day, especially not even so much the Green Day from the mid-'90s, but the later ones when they were doing American Idiot and that kind of stuff. It's a really good song. Another yeah, good he's one. got some great shit going there. Punk is a funny word because a lot of things can, can fall into its, uh, you know, yeah. like Bo Diddley, uh, you know. The yeah. first Grateful Dead record sounds like a punk record. I mean, it doesn't... You know, first just, police record. Just because it's... Right. Rough and rough and ready and raw and they're dangerous anarchic people playing it, you know. So you could you, the definition goes to a lot of different weird places. It sure you know? does, and we we definitely discovered that yeah. going through it because there's a lot of stuff I'd say to myself. Well, I wouldn't have considered that on yeah. its face to be punk, but it absolutely has all those elements that yeah. you're just talking about. <clears throat> yeah, but this is definitely heavier. Although he does have. Uh, um, Melodic sensibilities. This is these songs. These last two of this band seem much heavier. Well, they, they're they're doing that. They have one thing. They have two guitars instead of one, so they're able to really lay yeah. down a yeah. you know like that the riff, the crunching riff like you'd have in a in ACDC almost, and then you've got the lead over the top of it. So they do they do lay that. And Tom's and, going for a simpler thing. And also, there's there is no like sorted humor had Jim, which was very definitely Manchester, England. Peter Hook, Hacienda, New Order, Joy Division element to it. You know, that whole sound of that bass and the affected bass and the bass, that higher register baritone melodic thing, you know. Um, and it made, because it was another, it, it, that sort of humorous sound is wider, you know. This is just definitely stripped down and bright and, you know, toothpaste and orange juice in your face you know <laughs> but it's still again it still reflects his melodic sensibility yeah. oh yeah yeah it's and he's definitely not hiding and it. the lyrics always you know my mind is telling me that i love des moines but i can't remember the song i i remember that that's a really good one too same record yeah let's play it des moines
That was a great song. Another great one. Really good, tight, well-structured songwriting right there. And what's the name of that band again? Engine 88. Engine 88. Yeah, that was the what came after Sort of Humor for Tom Barnes. Yeah. So there you go. I watched this documentary the other night on uh, Gilbert Gottfried called Gilbert. Have you guys seen that at all? No. It's on Netflix, I think. It's really good. It's interesting about his life because, you know, he got married. He actually married a, a woman we knew. Um, Adara. I can't remember what Adara's last name was because now I just think of her as Gottfried. But she worked at, uh, at Geffen or Universal for a while. Uh-huh. She's a really nice girl. And uh, she married Gilbert. They've got two kids now. Um, now he was telling this, this one joke in the, in the thing. Uh, i got to remember it now. Oh, yeah, a guy goes to a tattoo shop, gets a tattoo that says, I love you, tattooed on his dick, and uh, walks home, drops trial to show his wife, and she says, stop trying to put words in my mouth. (laughs) 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 Classic Godfrey. I I, I couldn't do it in his, his, uh, what was the other one? He he told two jokes that were absolutely spectacular. Okay, uh, yeah. So this guy goes to a bar, and he gets so drunk. He just he throws up all over his own shirt. Just throws up all over his shirt. And he's talking to the bartender. And he goes, fuck, I'm in so much trouble. When I get home, my wife sees me and sees that I got so drunk, I threw up all over my shirt. She's going to fucking kill me. And the bartender says, don't worry about it. Here's what you do. Do you have $10 on you? And he says, yeah. And he goes, just take $10, put it in your in your shirt pocket. When you get home, just say, this guy got so drunk at the bar he threw up on my shirt but he gave me $10 for the laundry and the guy says uh, okay that's a good idea I'll, I'll try that and uh, he gets home and he walks in the door and his wife takes one look at him and says what the fuck happened to you and he says uh, some guy at the bar he got he got so drunk he, he threw up all over my shirt uh, but he gave me $10 to, to get it cleaned and holds out the money to her and she takes the money from him and she says wait I don't get it this is a 20 and he goes oh yeah he's shitting my pants too <laughs> but, but it's funny if, <laughs> if you tell a joke like this <laughs> yeah I, I can't I'm not gonna take Gilbert's yeah it's hard to pull that off but yeah. I thought that joke I, that joke to me is fucking genius did you, did you guys ever see the Aristocrats movie oh yeah I mean that's a famous story that he said that was right after 9-11. Oh, no, yeah. Do you know that story? Well, yeah, because I saw the Aristocrats at uh, Jeff Ross and Oh, well, you Saget saw it with comedians. Uh, and they said, you know, this movie is showing we're doing this here. Saget is brilliant. And uh, he, So me and Greg Peters and Greg Cimino, Cuz, and Tom Gardner, we all go down to the Director's Guild or the Writer's Guild, the camera, one of them, and there's a screening there. And this whole room is packed. And it is the four of us and every single comedian in New York in this room. They're all in the movie. Oh, and, awesome. And they're you ever all, see this flick? Yeah. yeah, yeah. It's it, amazing. It was an incredible experience because like, I saw it with the audience of all of them. Right. You know? And Saget is magnificent in that. But, but the famous story of Godfrey, I think it's at the Friars Club or some. They're doing a roast and it's right. It, it, they couldn't cancel. It's like days it's the, uh, after 9-11. It's the Hugh Hefner roast. Yeah, and, and nothing is work because you know it's it's after nine eleven and just everybody. Yeah, right. And he goes up there and just does the aristocrats bit in total Godfrey. You know, pulls pants over his. No, head. it's it's not quite that. They do address this in the movie too, but I remember it. From oh, it's the in the stock. 
That, that part is. Because it's God's a big change in his life. It's about several times in his life where he said something that got people really pissed off at him. That night, everybody's jokes are falling flat. Because right. it's only it's like a few weeks after yeah, 9-11. Yeah. And it's the first thing anyone's done since then, comedy-wise. And right. he does a joke about he had trouble getting a flight to New York. All the ones he could do had layovers at the Statue of Liberty. Right, right. Or the, whatever it was, oh, or the, uh, oh, yeah. the Empire State Building. They all had layovers at the... Uh, yeah, so he was bombing because he was people, trying, yeah, people yeah. were like too soon. They were yelling and they like they were kind of booing him and and he just like he took it further. Turns right? around yeah. and goes, "Fine, I will take this eight steps." And he does the aristocrats a joke none of them do on stage and right. unrelentingly does it for like a half an hour. Yes. Just will not stop. You know the grossest joke of all time that you know comics do for each other, but not right. on stage. We should mention that. Right? It was it was amazing. You say the most disgusting things that any human being can do: children, animals, anything for like as long as you can keep it going. And at the end, you say, "What is that? What is the name of that act? The Aristocrats." <laughs> what, it's what, the you, what do you call that act again? That's <laughs> <laughs> the thing that uh, yeah, he yeah. does that thing. Uh, God, what's the Drew Drew uh, Drew Carey? Drew Carey. In his version of it. He always goes, and uh, what'd you call that act again? The aristocrats. <laughs> <What is it? laughs> or the sophisticates. The sophisticates is Martin Mull. He goes, I change it a little bit. I call it the sophisticates. <laughs> I know, it's fantastic. Yeah, I love that. I love the irreverence of that. And it's great, too, because they get a lot of people who are gone now. Uh, Robin Williams, George Carlin, so many, you know, so many people in that. Um, but anyway, so... As we, we, I, I wonder, what was the other song you wanted to hear that you were talking Pelican. about? Pelican. Oh, Pelicans. Maybe we should end with chunk that. by yeah. chunk, yeah. eating everything. Chippewa, yeah. Cherokee, Chihuahua, wah wah wah. I'm gonna play a little Pelican for you from from Engine Eighty Eight. Blood. Of course she would She's all 
Like the moonlight on marigolds, like snow on a centerfold, the sun goes down forever. We were talking about how we, we, we both went up to it at one point. We are like, wow, that is such a great chorus lyric. And in the end, it's always hard to get out, hard to get out of the way. And in the end, it's always hard to get out, hard to get out of the way. And he's like, no, that's not what I'm saying. Like, <laughs> what are you saying? He's like, I'm saying an Indian is always hard to get out, hard to get out of the way. An Indian is always hard to get. It's like love, it's like, like genocide. Like the way what? you move through people yeah. is genocidal. Right. Wow, was what he was saying, like which is an entirely different thing that I hadn't even seen in there. And he was like, then the song means, you know, it really opens up what that song means. It's all these things that are eating their way through other things, and like, yeah, it's a much more violent yeah, he, song he, at that point. You know, he turned away, walked away, and we're like, he, he, he really is insane. <laughs> fuck, fuck, <laughs> that's a hell of a lyric. <laughs> fuck, <laughs> fuck, that's yeah. not what I'm singing at all. <laughs> fuck. <laughs> That's a great lyric. Jesus. Fuck. I love that piece of music. That's just, it's just good stuff. Yeah, he's amazing. You know, that's all Band's the really first great. album. Band is great on that one. I mean, there's yeah. great, that second album has Istanbul on it and Man Club, uh, Second All. Killer Willow. Maybe? Killer Willow's on which second I, album. Butchery. Which I always think of when I'm driving up Highway 5 and I pass Button Willow. I always think, Button Willow, Killer Willow. <laughs> And we didn't play that song "Drowning," which I was thinking was their, yeah. you know, their main song. We didn't. Uh, um, I could play you every song off every record he did, <laughs> and I have a reason for playing it. Um, well, but we forgot to play. We we wanted to come back because Immer was here with us a few weeks ago, and we played uh, for the release of the Bronte Pin, and, and we played a lot of Monks of Doom songs. And we were talking after that about one song we skipped called um, "Light in the Sky." Correct. And you were telling us about that, how well, it started. Well, I guess we can tie this into just uh, Bay Area-ness. Uh, well, also, so we just played a bunch of shit with you and Chris that's, Peterson That's on true, it, that's so. true. But, this, yeah, this, would be, this story is a celebration of the amazingness and uh, insanity of Chris Peterson, uh, the drummer. And he, for this song, which is a Steve Hillage song, it's on our record, What's Left for Kicks... Um, which is a quote from the hot rod teen uh, pulp movie Hot Rods to Hell from the late 60s. Um, is that could, the movie with the, we want to get stoned, we don't want to... No, that, that's a, that was one of those biker movies. Right, right. Is this a yeah, Roger yeah. Corman special? It, one of it might be a Corman, it yeah. must be a Corman special movie, but I saw it when I was a kid. But, but anyway, uh, I digress. Uh, Chris, uh, we were we were already well into doing this album. We'd, we'd recorded a, a few covers, and we were resurrecting some old recordings that we had and putting touches on some live recordings. And Chris sent, uh, sent us out from Australia this completed drum track of this insane Steve Hillage song, Light in the Sky, which he and I are big fans of Steve Hillage and, uh, and Gong, uh, bizarre sort of post prog hippie pink floydy psychedelic collective um and uh so when you listen to the song just know that the drum track came with no other music to it and we put everything to the completed drum track but the whole layout of the song was in the drum track and i i all it's the dynamics. Just, it's just so insane to think of Chris in his in the studio in Sydney. Just well, God damn it! I'm, I'm if I don't if I 
if I can't fly out there, I'm going to send him this goddamn... He sent us this, and I think he sent us the Wire song as well, the 15th that's on that album, <laughs> with, uh, with uh, no, uh, no other music to it, and I'm pretty sure he just played it with the song going on in his head. So The original song. Uh, uh, well, there's... No, it, the version follows, he was imagining. It, follows, it. <laughs> it does follow the format of, of, of the original Steve Hillage version, but it goes through all these changes, and he was playing to no music. Wow. So you, you can just listen to this song and uh, imagine that. And also, and, it's lead vocals. Oh, by, yeah, I, I sang. By the man. Lead vocals on this song. Yeah, it's a good And also, vocal. if you listen very closely, as it's fading out, it's kind of amusing. And I probably shouldn't say this because we'll probably get sued, but my guitar amp, because uh, there's this like uh, star cluster. Uh, passage at the end of the song as it's fading out uh my amp picked up on the radio a song that was um, prominent at the time and it's cheryl crow and kid rock and you can just sort of hear her oh that's what's going on at the end you can sort of hear it's coming out coming <laughs> no, through my amp it's like a radio thing it's coming got. through my amp no kidding yeah and it's just like oh that's weird and then it's like Oh no, that's perfect. It's like a weird satellite. It's so you know, true. Light it comes years, in right at you know, the end. A dead star, you know. Yeah. Broadcast. I, I thought you guys were finding like something from War of the Worlds no, or something just, to play in the background. It just happened to come through. It's like, oh, we got to get, get that out. of it. It's like, no, we got to leave that in. <laughs> but so you can just. But anyway, Chris Peterson uh, celebration of my dear friend and compatriot Chris Peterson on drums. One of the nice things about being a grown up now, not that I wasn't then, but. I was so intimidated meeting those guys, but as we've kind of on on all the various trips to Australia over the years, I, I do enjoy getting to hang out with Chris Peterson uh, uh, as a fully grown adult, where I can we, talk to him as opposed we? to before when I was hiding in my dad's basement, <laughs> hiding in the stairs of my dad's basement, too intimidated to say anything. <laughs> he's actually a really nice guy, um, but he was intimidating the way he was kicking the shit out of those drums when I was a kid. <laughs> Anyways, I guess we're going to wrap it up here. Thanks so for having been, me again, boys. You're very welcome. Nice to be here. Yet another nice. episode of the Underwater Sunshine Podcast. May I come back again sometime? Oh, please. Please. These are going to be highly rated. People, You know, you were requested. People have requested your presence on these broadcasts. So. And yeah, not but were those bots? Or were they, you know, <laughs> but Russian things, bots. Right? <laughs> if you, if you, you watch the internet I'll carefully, take a bot request. all things that happen, people request for Immigrant <laughs> to be there. All things. <laughs> all things. They yes. want you to just show up. They'd like you yeah. to be on Stranger Everybody Things. Everybody wants to party with Emmy. I've right. They want you at your, at your Everybody at your got long hair, <laughs> but only Emma. Anyway, good times. <laughs> long hair. Good times. Right. Thank you. This has been the Underwater Sunshine Podcast. I am your host, Adam Duritz, my friend and compatriot. James Campion. Thanks again for listening, everybody. Peace. My childhood chum and compatriot. David Emmergluck. We'll see you later. This is Light in the Sky. Ciao, Thank fella, you, Ehud, ciao, for helping fella. us out. This is Light in the Sky from the Monks of Doom 2005 record, What's Left for Kicks. Dig the Emmergasm.
light in the sky. In 77, the light shone from our hearts and from our eyes. We looked into the ethers and saw that they were very much alive. The sources that were teaching us to find the higher energy were twinkling our mind's eyes so we can rise and be in the sky oh, me oh my there's a light in the sky oh, me oh my there's a light in the sky oh, 